It's Tuesday, February 13th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, voters go to the polls on Long Island and parts of Queens, which doesn't, geographically speaking, contradict the on Long Island part of things. Leading slightly in the polls, different polls than the polls they go to. It's all so confusing, isn't it? Anyway, it's a guy named Tom Swazi. He's a Democrat. He was mayor of the Nassau County city of Glen Cove. He was executive of the town of Hempstead, which rather weirdly in this part of the world is a bigger deal than the city mayor. He's a former congressman. That's the biggest deal of all. He's also, according to his opponent, Republican Mazzy Pillip, the man responsible for all 2 million migrants who crossed the border from Mexico. Tom Swazi opened the border. Tom Swazi funding the sanctuary city. Tom Swazi kicked ice from Nassau County. Pillip would not just be a notable member of Congress because her last name, Pillip, is a palindrome. And it wouldn't be the case that she was notable simply because she's taking over from noted cameo star and inventor of the bedazzler George Santos, but because she has a very interesting background. You heard her accent. Maybe you couldn't place it. I'll help you. She is an Ethiopian Jew, born in Ethiopia, raised in Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces, an African-American, Jewish-American. Wow. She is also, though not quite to the extent of four-time U.S. Open champion and popularizer of the phrase, mad props George Santos, she's a person of mystery. Not so much her biography, though her Wikipedia page does begin, Mazi Melissa Pillup, born 1978 or 1979, all right, better nail that down before you get sworn in, she was a member of the county legislature for two terms, but her exact position on the issues are opaque. For instance, here's a big issue to voters. Is she pro-choice or pro-life? And here's Swazi trying to nail her down on it. You know what's funny? You, a man, will tell Mazi Pillip, a mother of seven children, what's women's rights? What's pregnancy about? Are you saying that you're pro-choice? Uh, are you pro-choice? Every woman should have that right. Well, that's about laws. Make- That's about laws. It is is a personal decision, a personal choice. Pillip has ducked almost all media interviews, agreeing to only the one debate clips you heard there. And sometimes she doesn't even show up to her own rallies, though as an Orthodox Jew, it's understandable for her to skip the ones that take place on Sabbath. No, what I mean is that Mozzie Pillip, she has three big issues. They're right there in her bio. She is a former Israel defense soldier who married a Ukrainian-born man and who counts as her number one concern, immigration. But right now, before the House of Representatives, is a package put forth by the Senate to fund Israel and Ukraine. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, who did a fundraiser for Pillip, who was in the district campaigning for her, has vowed to tank that bill, as ABC News reports. In fact, House Speaker Mike Johnson already said he's not even going to take it up in the House unless it includes changes to border policy. But that is exactly what senators originally tried to do. A group of bipartisan senators worked for months to negotiate a massive bill that would address foreign aid and the immigration crisis. But then Donald Trump derailed it by pressuring Republicans to vote against it. So the question that needs to be put to Pillip is, you have three main issues, migration, Israel, and Ukraine. And now they are in tension. Which side do you pick? The voters want to know, will you not fund Israel unless you get immigration reform, immigration reform that you're not going to get? Or would you break with the speaker who supports you, your benefactor, Mike Johnson, 
also breaking with Donald Trump, and vote for the funding to Israel over their objections. And that, by the way, actually could happen. Kind of a long shot, but it could happen. Voters deserve to know this. They have no way of knowing it because no one asked the question. Part of what's going on is that the candidate certainly can duck a hard choice or put the issue back on the opponent. Like, did Swazi really open the border? The answer to that one is he did not. Is he really affiliated with the squad? He certainly is not. But here is his answer on the border issue. In 2018, when I was in Congress, I was one of only 18 Democrats that voted to fund ICE. When people said, let's abolish ICE, I was only one of 18 Democrats. I went against my party. So vote for me. I'm the guy from the party who wants to abolish ICE, even though my particular small slice of the party doesn't want to. Hmm, doesn't sound like a terribly attractive message to voters whose solution to immigration goes beyond. Okay, step one, let's not abolish the agency that enforces the law governing immigration. (laughs) At least Swazi is giving an answer. What's Pillip's answer? She never even fielded the question. The district is in Long Island and Queens, and that means it's covered by the biggest media market in the country, making TV ads expensive, true, but also the incentives for local network affiliates to cover the race when 90% of your audience isn't voting in that race is less than in many, many most other TV markets. A congressional race in a rural area or in a state like Wyoming, where they have only one congressperson, would be the dominant news in all the local media. In most other cities where there might be one or two members of Congress, you would get a lot of coverage in local media. In a suburb of New York, you just don't get a lot of coverage. Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, has been covering it, though there are far fewer readers of Newsday on Long Island than when I grew up there. The New York Times is doing a little bit to make up for entirely missing the Santos story, but not an overwhelming amount. There's literally no mention of this race in today's newspaper. That is, you could tell, that's today's newspaper. I just didn't shake a paper. Wait, hold on. That's not, that's Sunday's. That's an interview with Robert Downey Jr. in Sunday's newspaper. This is Monday's newspaper. So there was, there was an article in that one. I do not know who has the edge in this race. I do not know who has all the information to vote in this race. I think, you ready for my analysis? I think it'll all come down to the fact that it's snowing, which will affect turnout. But, and here's an asterisk to that, it's not snowing as badly as was forecast. Would that all American politics be salvaged by the phrase, Not as badly as was forecast. On the show today, a hodgepodge of snow-addled revelry, which also answers the question, where did the TH go in Nor'easter? But first, gun rights, specifically a semi-automatic weapon ban. They're not as salient in the New York election I was talking about as all of the other issues, but they're being discussed I would have to say a national semi-automatic weapon ban has no chance of passage, no matter the wishes of suburban New Yorkers. And that's because in most other parts of the country, gun rights are associated with patriotism, identity. They're more than weapons. They're totems and ways of life. Jonathan Metzl is a professor of psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the author of What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. We'll talk about gun rights and why talking about talking about gun rights is pretty ineffective. Jonathan Metzl up next. So you've heard me say, perhaps in an ad, 
in the recent past, that first we make our habits, then they make us. That is a quote attributed to the English poet John Dryden. I believe he was the first poet laureate. It is poetic. First we make our habits, then they make us. Let's talk about the inverse of that. What do we do when we want to get rid of a habit? What about when we think our habits are, let us say, unmaking us? Enter a product I'm here to talk to you about. It's called Fume. Fume is not a vapor. It's flavored air. So what it does is it takes one habit that maybe you're trying to kick and replace it with a behavior that has the look and feel of that habit, but not the detriments. It's pleasant. It's similar. It's replacing a bad habit with a different, more positive behavior. And now with all orders, you could buy one, get one on their cores, which are their different flavorings. You could stock up throughout the year, these cold winter months, something to do, something to exhale, flavored air, so nice. And as a listener of The Gist, you'll get an extra 10% off when you use the code. Head to tryfume.com slash the gist and use the code the gist for an additional 10% off plus BOGO cores to help start making the good habit that much easier. Thank you, Shaka Smart. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedoms for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app wherever you get your podcasts. And you can binge this season American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. In April of 2018, a man named Travis Reinking entered a Waffle House in Nashville. He was carrying an AR-15, and yes, this is another story of a mass shooting. By the time he was done, four people were dead, two were injured. Now, you may have forgotten this particular incident, but for two details. One, Reinking was naked from the waist down, which is unusual until you realized that he had schizophrenia. The other was, maybe you remember this part, a Waffle House customer named James Shaw intervened, jumped on Ryan King, grabbed the gun from him, threw it behind the counter, saving many lives. So it was just another one of our stories of horrible mass shooting deaths, but with an asterisk. But for Professor Jonathan Metzl, this was more than a curiosity and a tragedy. It happened in his backyard. He lives in Nashville and he began to attend the judicial hearings. He began to analyze what happened, and he saw it as an example of so much that was going on with gun culture, gun crimes, and gun discourse. This is the area of his expertise. Jonathan Metzl is the Frederick Rensselaer Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry and the director of the Department of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. He wrote Dying of Whiteness. His new book about Ryan King and what it implies is what we've become, living and dying in a country of arms. Jonathan, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. 
So this had to grab you and had to grip you. But there have been other mass shootings in and around Nashville. There was one pretty horrific one and famous one at a school since. But what about this struck you as not just another one of these one-offs, but something that stood for something more? Well, thank you. I think that's a great way to lead into this conversation. And I think it's twofold. I mean, one is that people know, I mean, you can, we hear about mass shootings, they kind of fall like raindrops happening so quickly that, you know, we, we hear them, they're horrible, we focus on them. And then we move on to the next headline a few days later. That didn't used to be the case. We used to have a national conversation after every one of these things about where have we gone wrong and what can we do? But now there are more mass shootings than days in in this country. And so if it's not happening in your immediate area, you empathize, maybe you're outraged. And then three days later, you're on to the next headline, which is understandable from a right. The only the only aspects that make a breakthrough are an exceptionally high death count, and no one decides this. But it seems to me that that necessary death count for a mass shooting to become a pub- public conversation has gone from five to eight to it's somewhere around twelve or thirteen now until we really talk about it. And even even then, I mean, think about like the you know we just had a mass shooting in in January with a pretty high death count, and and. And then, you know, just there, there are a lot of headlines. And again, this is not, but, but I guess the point I was going to make was when it's in your circle, that, 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 that trend doesn't happen because you know the families or you see the families or you know the victims or know people, the victims. And so you kind of see, um, there's a kind of ripple effect where it's the victims, then the families, then the communities. And the communities really live with this. I mean, you kind of, you drive by that place where that shooting happened, and that's the place where that shooting happened. And you know the families and you hear the families. And so in a way that part of it was having, it's different to study mass shootings and have one happen really close to you. That was part of why I, I wrote the book was just, let's let's slow this down and see what happens when you really tell the story of one mass shooting what happens when you really try to stop the clock and figure out the before and after of an actual mass shooting? And then this particular shooting <clears throat> was one with profound racial dimensions because it happened in a Waffle House that was full of young adults of color who were celebrating the night out after the clubs closed or celebrating a, b- a bunch of other different things. It was about two in the morning. And it was a naked white man with an AR-15 who had driven to that part of town and walked in and, and shot the outside, shot uh, four, uh, shot and injured three or four uh, people and shot uh, and killed four people. And so it was a naked white man killing young adults of color. And so for me, also, the racial dimensions of this were a very important part of the story. Well, there was another part that jumped out at me, and we're definitely going to get to the whiteness with you, the author of Dying of Whiteness. But this could have, it wasn't for the death toll or the heroism of uh, Shaw who stopped the shooter. There was one aspect of it that was really, really stark, and it was comparing the state laws that Ryan King was subject to because he came from Illinois and he went to Nashville. And tell me if I'm wrong. It wasn't just that the guns he had in Illinois, he was not allowed to have. And he went to Nashville where he was allowed to have guns. It wasn't just coincidental. That was a main motivation for him moving or traveling and living in Tennessee. He wanted his guns. Right. I, 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 the, the, for me, the shooting is a metaphor for the really the rankings, white 
body, armed white murderous body as a metaphor for a lot of things. Um, and that's kind of what I wrestle with in the book. But one of the main things is um, he he wasn't a criminal in, in, in Tennessee. He was in Illinois. He, in Illinois, he had done all kinds of really crazy stuff before. He had threatened people. He had traveled to the White House and tried to speak with President Trump. He had an FBI file. So in Illinois, he couldn't have his guns um, because, um, because he had a, had a file. Um, and then what happened was he, he knew that the minute he crossed the state line in Tennessee, he was protected by the carry laws. And in fact, authorities in Tennessee said that afterwards. And so the draw for him of going from Illinois to Tennessee was that he wouldn't be separated with guns that had a very profound, erotic, emotional component for him. They protected him against, as I talk about in the book, his own homoerotic drives, his, you know, all of these kind of factors. And so going from a blue state to a red state let him... Um, it was almost like I kept thinking of like Gollum. It, it let him keep his precious in a way. And, yeah. and that's kind of what the draw was. And I just want to make clear to my listeners, some of this is your reading of it. And uh, that's fair in your position to do so. And we'll talk about that in a second. You know, metaphors about what or interpretations about his motivations. But he recorded video after video. And he also was explicit about why he was moving from Illinois to Nashville, how much he wanted his guns. And then the schizophrenia would come out in different ways. But even just a transcript of things he would said would make it abundantly clear this was a main motive for him, right? I, I got access to some pretty incredible material from relatives, from un, from anonymous sources about this. And one of the main ones was he filmed a bunch of YouTube videos before the uh, before he did all this, when he was in Illinois and, and he was naked in bed with the guns. He was lying with the guns. He was, and and then the FBI came and took his guns after the, after the, after the, um, the white house incident. And he basically said, this is why, this is why I'm going to Tennessee is because uh, there's no law keeping me from having these guns in Tennessee. And the other thing was the FBI came, they said, you can't have your guns. The police, also the local police in Illinois, they locked the guns into a safe, but they locked it into the father's safe. They gave the father the approval to basically say, keep the guns away from your son. Huge mistake. But then when the son said, I'm going out of state where they don't have these gun laws, that also led the father to give the son the guns back. And so it was the father and the son that were driven by this logic. The father is now serving a jail term for his actions. So the other thing, or actually the main thing about the book, the story is shot through, sorry about the pun, with what Ryan King did, how it shows so much of what you've studied, but you're also accounting for your own profession, public health researchers, and their conceptualization of mass shootings as a public health emergency um, action, etc., why, what has the public health community done wrong in studying it this way? It's not that the studies are wrong. It's not that their conclusions are wrong. But what criticisms are you making of public health, the public health way of thinking about mass shootings and gun, gun violence? When I started the project, I, I never would have had the thoughts that I did after. I've, I spent five years really going into depth about this project. And even when I was interviewed in the days after the mass shooting, I said, this is a clear indication of the need for public health gun laws that I do think 
work. I am, I'm a doctor. I'm an advocate for public health uh, based gun reform. I think if we had background checks and red flag laws and assault weapons bans across, across the country, we would have a lot safer and a lot more civil country. So I'm an advocate for these laws, but, 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 but what happens things started to change my mind, not about the effectiveness about the laws, but I think two things happened for me that I think really changed the way I think about them. One is that, as I mentioned before, ranking, um, ranking had walked around Nashville as a gun owner with four semi-automatic weapons acting bonkers and, um, and, and, and he hadn't broken any laws and it's maybe a, a public decency law or something, but there were all these open carry laws that basically said a white man usually is kind of how it plays out, even though it's not written that way, has the right to carry a gun and walk around. And so until the minute he pulled the trigger, he really had done nothing wrong. There was nothing that stopped, um, that stopped anyone from, uh, from, it, uh, from doing anything about it. And so point number one for me about this is that public health, the model that I advocate for, we track the horrific numbers of gun-related shootings, uh, injuries, deaths, traumas, all these things. But I started to realize we have very little to say about what it means to carry a gun in a place like Tennessee. And, and that's important because across Tennessee and then across many states acro- across the country, it's just been open season on these laws. I mean, basically, the right wing has said, well, okay, we don't want injuries or deaths either, but what about carrying a gun? We had no answer to open carry. So that's that was point number one. And then point number two was, why is it that we're not convincing red state gun owners, even when the implications of having crappy gun laws is really clear? Why is it we're not convincing anybody? And I really took a deep dive, and I it led me to, of course, critique the NRA and all the usual suspects, but it also led me to think, why is it that public health isn't convincing people in the places where there are the most guns and the most shootings? Right. So the research, it's not that public health got the research wrong. And what the research shows is that the open carry laws of the red states don't just seem like, well, that's going to be dangerous, has been pretty much proved to correlate to more mass shootings. Growing, I'll read from the book, Growing numbers of studies found that red states' right-to-carry laws have made it easier for people to carry concealed weapons in public, increased, quote, firearm exposure in the general population, leading to ever more homicides, suicides, workplace shootings, and other forms of armed aggression. Uh, Boston-based public health researchers found that red states with shall-issue gun laws, in which in which permits were issued if criteria were met, so more, saw more gun deaths than blue states with may-issue gun laws. So tell me if this is how the public health community dealt with that bona fide accurate research. Therefore, you should have may-issue laws in your states if you want to increase deaths. Red states answer, No. Public health response. All right, that's all we could do. Well, it, it's it's really a really different way of thinking about guns and about safety, right? So what I found really um, was that um, what I found was that the the public health way, the way I think about guns, the way many of my liberal friends think about guns, we see them through a rhetoric of risk, like guns could cause bad effects. Guns could cause injuries and deaths the ways cigarettes could or faulty seatbelts could. And so we want to keep everybody safe. So let's mitigate that risk by doing things that reduce, uh, reduce 
injuries and deaths. That's the public health framework. That's the way liberals think about things. Um, but that's not how people in Tennessee think about guns. That's how, not how gun owners think about guns. They use metrics of power, um, speculative threat, racism, all these factors. And it's and so part of the issue that I started to see was a shooting would happen. Liberals like me would rush in and say, we need more government regulation. We right, need- right. Do this like the blue states do. Yeah, yeah. Do this like the blue states do. But that doesn't work. In fact, that that's like Spanish fly for red state gun owners to go and buy more guns. If you tell yeah. them, oh, the government's going to do more regulation and you are going to regulate my guns, they're going to rush out and buy 30 more guns. And so yeah. in a way, the entire framework that works in a place like New York, it just doesn't make sense. And the key point here is that the red state gun owners are the people who are going to be impacted by gun laws because they're the people who own the guns. So you talk to gun owners in the South, you, it became apparent to you that none of this uh, communication was not only was it not working, it was uh, backfiring. Is the way to communicate better to just signal to them how much you understand where they're coming from, even if you secretly want to act against their perceived self-interest. Doesn't seem like they're stupid enough for that to work. No, I mean, you know, I mean, I I do think there is something to be said for getting it right. I mean, you know, you get it for one person, you don't for the others. But I, because I live in Tennessee, I know a lot of gun owners. I I listen to their concerns and I don't think, you know, this was a really hard book to write. It was a really hard book to write, but I would have readers who were like my New York regular New York readers and they would kept intervening and writing in stuff like gun nuts and stuff like that into the text for the edits. And I'm like, no, no, the minute we call them gun nuts, <laughs> you know, we're going to lose them. And so I think, I do think there is something to signaling, but I don't think it's going to move the needle. Um, but I guess part of what I come to in the book is that there are all these structural things we do as a society that don't inherently involve governments. I mean, I think we have to win elections, but I also think that we're kidding ourselves if we think that if we win elections and seat judges, those judges are going to do background checks and red flag laws, and that's going to solve the problem. Or that's going to in many ways, make the problem down here worse. And so I started to look at like, what are other non-governmental ways that we can incentivize people to make the world safer from gunfire? A couple of things I looked at, for example, are healthcare algorithms that health insurers use a lot, where they basically tell communities, if as a community, you reduce your ER visits and lower your systolic blood pressure and make more parks and bike lanes and the community is healthier, you know, we'll reduce your health insurance rates. And so part of it was, there's an, there's an industry model in healthcare. Um, what if we incentivized people through similar methods like that. I'm just throwing throwing things out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are ways in which we can um, think about um, just um, incentivizing gun safety. I mean, gun selling guns is a huge is a huge industry, right? But there are ways in which we can be much more pro entrepreneurial about. Um, I mean, I know people have tried this, but. AI models for reducing gunfire that are monetized or um, smart guns that are monetized, all these ways. So there are ways in which we can enlist private industry more. And again, I have a whole list of these things. Not that I think anything's going to happen overnight, but I do think, again, that it's just the, the fallacy I'm trying to rebut is we win an election, we make gun owners 
um, list their purchases in a government database and that's the end of the story. That's not the story. We need to think upstream about how we can provide structural interventions that ultimately make communities feel safer in, um, in ways that ideally, and I realize this is obviously rosy, um, reduce the need for people to feel like they have to own or carry guns in the first place. Um, I have a little bit of optimism. I think that I, I, you know we haven't seen states pulling back from going from uh, shall issue to may issue, yeah. for instance, have we? Has any state done that? Well, the, the question is going to be, and I just want to say this very clearly, if Trump wins another election <laughs> um, and he seats more of these right-wing justices on the Supreme Court, it's not so much going to be a state issue anymore. I mean, yeah. but I'm optimistic too. I'm, I, I'm optimistic. I hope we, I hope we win. I just think hopefully my book makes people think about what winning would mean. I mean, I, I have to say if, if the kinds of mass shootings like the one I write about don't change people's minds, um, then, then we're not going to win elections based on the gun issue in a place like Tennessee. Um, but I would also say that I don't think that winning means we win elections and we mandate red flag laws and background checks and all these other things. And that's the end of the story. I do think that winning lets us change the terms of this debate about what it means to be in the public sphere in America, what it means to have a safe public space. So I really hope we win. And I hope it, when we win, we actually see it as an opportunity to change the terms of this incredibly polarizing debate in ways that encourage public safety in its broadest sense. And 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 in doing so means rethinking what we're advocating for. Is that optimistic? That's pretty optimistic. I think it's optimism rooted in realism, which yeah. is the best kind of optimism. Jonathan Metzl is a professor at Vanderbilt University, where he is that school's director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. His latest book is What We've Become Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm not going to give you something for nothing, but I am going to give you something and it will take very, very little. So let's think about New Year's because that means New Year's resolutions. And, you know, for a lot of us, it's to save money. What you could do is you could start getting cash back with every purchase you make on Ibotta. Why leave money on the table or anywhere other than your pocket and your wallet? And that's where Ibotta comes in. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. So you can make sure you're beating inflation, outpacing inflation. That's what we do. We outpace inflation and Ibotta is going to help us. The average Ibotta user earned $145 last year. Think about what that can buy. A big shopping trip. How about upgrades to comfortable seats on an airline? Or, you know, a game or concert. Other apps give you points that don't amount to much with Ibotta. Just add your offers in the app. Upload your receipt and you just get the cash. You cash it out in your bank account, PayPal, on gift cards, however you want to do it. Some of the brands that you can shop from include Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy's, more than that. Right now, Ibotta, and soon I'm going to tell you how to spell Ibotta because it's going to blow your mind. All right, I'll tell you now. It's I-B-O-T-T-A. That's important because you need to know that right now, Ibotta 
is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code THEGIST when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code THEGIST. Please use the code THEGIST. They give us credit for using the code THEGIST and they keep advertising on their show, making us money, making you money. That is I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use the code THEGIST. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the weather and the spiel. It's a nor'easter in the nor'east. The last few years, we've not had much snow on Lent nor Easter, which is where they get the name. No, it's not. I don't know where they get the name. I don't know why they eschewed the TH in the Nor'easter for the Northeaster. I'm not about to embark on a massive letter-writing campaign. That was the tactic of Mr. Edward Commie of Brunswick, Maine, profiled in The New Yorker in 2005. He mailed postcards to any place he heard using the phrase Nor'easter. Quote, now hear this, the card begins. The use of Nor'easter to describe a Northeast storm is a pretentious and altogether lamentable affectation. The odious, even loathsome practice of landlubbers who would be seen as salty as the sea itself. You will, of course, accept my view in this matter in good part and will never use nor'easter again at least in public and thus oblige there is no evidence that anyone who received the card ever followed its instructions but it's too late for all that it's too late to pull back from the nor'easter i believe we have a natural human instinct to eliminate letters and replace them with apostrophes and this finds itself in the same place as the instinct to be homey the instinct of oh shucks or just folks Perhaps it relates to the energy shortages of the 1970s when there were perceived savings in the printing costs of substituting the F in filet of fish or the ER in pep-er-mint as opposed to Lifesaver's preferred pep-o-mint. Saved them millions over the years or at least dozens. Anyway, that's just a theory of mine. I won't begrudge those whose proper names thrust an apostrophe upon us. Lupita Nyong'o, the actress, Altamato, the former congressman, fine, fine. But then you have Divine Joy Randolph, wonderful in the holdovers, but a bit onerous on the lips. The Lupita Nyong'o thing, if you've never seen her name written out, the apostrophe comes right before the last O in Nyong'o. But in the possessive Nyong'o's, like that's Lupita Nyong'o's prerogative, it creates 
creates on the page a word that at the end looks like a bit of a surprised emoji. Go ahead, type it, write it down. You'll see what I mean. The one thing about nor'easters or snow days in general, and the thing that gets me through is the song. No, not Billy Joel. The song Walking in a Winter Wonderland. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Whenever it snows and I look out the window, instead of saying, ah, damn, I hear that song playing, and it's nice that that association comes to mind. Written in 1934, Walking in a Winter Wonderland was penned by Felix Bernard, whose other songs include The Mailman's Got My Letter, I'd Rather Be Me, Cutest Kid in Town, Tom Thumb and Tiny Teens, and $21 a Day Once a Month. These are cheery, upbeat, make-the-best-of-it songs for what could be depressing events. $21 a day once a month describes military conscription, militarism being thrust into perpetuating the idea of empire, and it does so in the cheeriest possible terms. They wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning. By the way, o'clock, also with an apostrophe. They wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning for $21 a day once a month. They take you for a hike without any warning for $21 a day once a month. They'll put a pack on your back. It almost weighs a ton. You'll march for miles and miles. And boy, ain't you got fun. For seven days a week, they build up your physique for $21 a day once a month. So military conscription, which everyone faced, was met with a cheery disposition and the idea that you're going to get a physique that the ladies will love. I do not think that the sentiment or optimism of walking in a winter wonderland would exist if it were to be written today. I cannot see indie rock supergroup Boy Genius writing happily about just about any weather phenomenon out there, or really happily, period. And by the way, a member of that supergroup, Lucy Dacus, once called the former president of the United States a war criminal on Twitter and was applauded for it. Which president of the United States? Not Trump, not Bush, not the other Bush, Obama. She called Obama a war criminal. I guess that's good for indie rock supergroup cred, but not for making us think a happy thought about a plausibly glum weather development. In general, the climate doomer youth of TikTok, they do not like anything that happens that's not room temperature. And they also do not like room temperature if that's achieved via air conditioning. And that's fine, I say, I've seen the IPCC reports, but when any amount of rain or heat or snow or wind get attributed to global warming, which is said to be the phenomenon that we're all convinced is going to kill the entire planet, every time you see a drop of rain or a flake of snow and it convinces you that you're dead, I think jaunty put-your-cares-on-hold-type melodies will not be the result. Gray skies are going to clear up pure denialism. You are the sunshine of my life, which is leading to crop failure. Look, I'm not saying we have a good environment. I am saying we do not have a good environment for creative expression in the form of pleasant little ditties. And I'm grateful for this particular ditty because outside is actually slushy, wet, probably going to cause a few septuagenarian half a pack a day smokers to keel over this very evening. But since that's the reality, I'm pleased to have the soundtrack of my mind providing a soundtrack of wonderment. Is it a delusion? Is it operant conditioning? Is it a conspiracy? Why, yes, quite explicitly, it is to quote and Later on, 
we'll conspire, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire, as we dream by the fire to face unafraid, to face unafraid the plans that we've, plans made, that we've made, walking in a winter wonderland that claimed a half dozen lives in accidents, heart attacks, and down power lines. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. They're the quaint mallards. Michelle Pesca is in charge of pillow arrangements and special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaborative eye rolls. She's also responsible for eye rolls, vice president of Rolling the Eyes. Yes, she is here while I record. I invited her in. I said, I think you'll like this one. Did you? She says yes. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist in Peru, G Peru, Do Peru, and thanks for listening. Thank you, honey. They wake you up at 5 o'clock in the morning For $21 a day once a month They take you for a hike without any warning For $21 a day once a month Your feet will hurt, your back will ache, and you'll be muscle-bound But all of this will disappear when payday comes around For seven days a week, they build up your physique for $21.